Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 19, being recorded on Thursday, March 24th, 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Batman, or, I mean, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason. Funny you mentioned that. I just got back from seeing Superman versus Batman. It was, it was without a spoiler-free review, two thumbs up, but I'm a... I'm an easy win because I obviously like the genre. Nice. I am uh, hoping to see it this weekend as well. So thank you for not spoiling it for me. And with the inclusion of, uh, I think it's pretty well known that Wonder Woman is in there. It's a date night movie. So boom, bring your wife. Exactly. And I think along that same line of Batman versus Superman, we have a couple of uh, summits to talk about this week. We do. If there's a theme to the last week, it was uh, Jason and Scott go to summits. Let's start with you. You were at Adobe Summit, which was in Sin City, if I'm correct. I am in Las Vegas right now as the summit has really just wrapped up. Uh, So this is their annual summit. It historically has been in Salt Lake City, where Adobe is based, and they literally have outgrown the city. So they were taking every hotel in Salt Lake City for the event, and this year they moved to Las Vegas, and now the whole event fits in one hotel, which is the Venetian. Mm. It's a good one. Yeah. So the theme of the show was from saints to sinners. <laughs> Did you get to uh, ride on a, in, a, in the little Venetian boats and stuff? I have in the past, but I did not ride a gondola this time. Uh, but it is a pretty good show. I, I have always thought Adobe does a good job compared to some of the other big platform vendors of putting on this event. They always get some big headliners. In years past, they've had uh, Michael Keaton and Robert Redford. This year, the big headliner was George Clooney. Wow. Impressive. He was very uh, entertaining and personable, as as you might expect. But in a small way, I was slightly disappointed. Some of the other huge headliners have actually done a really good job of sort of being interesting, but also tying their stories back to digital marketing and Adobe in some way, which I, I always was very impressed by. And George Clooney was super interesting, but he, you know, didn't really have a digital marketing tie-in. In fact, his big observation was when you reach his level of notoriety, it's a really bad idea to be on Twitter because it can't help you and it can only hurt you. Hmm. Interesting. Do you talk about how he almost ruined the Batman franchise? Yeah, he, he very overtly did talk about that and mentioned that he made his very best effort to ruin the Batman franchise. <laughs> and that shockingly, the, that his his film still made a little bit of money. Yeah, and then he, he's also famous for his pranks. Did he talk about those at all? He did. He he has a close friend who's a comedian whose name I'm not going to remember that he he shared some pranks with, and then he talked a lot about his ongoing war with Brad Pitt, and told them that he's in the middle of a seven year prank on Brad that's going to ruin Brad's career. So that was kind of the the teaser. Ah. So in three and a half years, the we'll, we'll know what this is. Exactly. What other cool e-commerce things did you learn about, and what was the general vibe of the show? Yeah, so there were a few things. They launched a new product that they're calling the Adobe Marketing Cloud Device Co-op, which is a long name. But essentially what this is, is it's a product to solve the problem of multiple device attribution. And we we've talked about that problem numerous times, but very common for a 
shopper to to start on a website on a mobile experience, do something, later visit that same website from their laptop, and very difficult, because we use cookies, very difficult to know that that's the same user and to personalize their laptop experience based on the previous mobile experience. Hmm. And so there are two companies that have historically been pretty good at solving that, Google and Facebook, because we all tend to be logged into Google and Facebook on all our devices. And so they're able to to see our logged in credentials across those devices. And so they each have their own private databases that, you know, frankly have a list of all the the various cookies on my different devices that they can relate back to Jason Goldberg, for example. And the problem with that is we can only use that data when we're advertising on Google or Facebook. Mm-hmm. So they sort of have walled garden and you can you can use that data to personalize your ads, but if you want to use it for anything else, you're out of luck. And so what Adobe's trying to do is say, hey, there are you know millions of websites and billions of sessions that occur on sites that are tagged by the Adobe Marketing Cloud and in particular the Adobe Analytics product. And what the device co-op is going to let you do is as a site owner, opt in to anonymously sharing all the user IDs and device IDs that we see on your site. And if you opt in to share your data, you'll also have access to query this now this now universal database to get a list of the devices that are owned by a user that's currently on your site. So essentially, it's letting you partner with all Adobe's other customers to try to do a better job of recognizing these these different devices that a single user owns. Interesting. Are they going to try to invite other, you know, the word co-op, I mean, it's probably intra-customer, but would they maybe partner with like IBM and try to get the core metrics kind of stuff in there as well? Or do you think it's going to be just within their cloud? I, I certainly don't think that's in the short-term roadmap. I think they're hoping that they're going to get a pretty big view of the ecosystem just by getting a lot of Adobe customers to opt in. By default, no customers are sharing data with the co-op. So you have to overtly decide you're going to share data. And then one of the problems with these kinds of co-ops are the privacy laws. And obviously, you know, Adobe is interested in doing business worldwide, not just in the U.S. And there's some very sticky privacy laws and requirements for individual consumers to be able to be forgotten and opt out of all these databases. So there's a bunch of privacy things that Adobe has to solve as part of this product, and I think they do have a a model for solving it. But I suspect if they get enough data just amongst Adobe customers, they won't have a strong incentive to bring other vendors in. But if the product ends up not being useful because not enough Adobe customers share data, then you could certainly imagine them expanding the product to to other uh, par- partners. Yeah, kind of makes you wonder about the privacy implications. Like, I wonder uh, here in the U.S. we're pretty lax on that stuff, but in the in the EU, I'm not really sure they would really like this whole thing. Exactly, and Adobe is overtly claiming that they have a completely EU compliant privacy model, and the the mm-hmm. co-op itself stores no what we call PII data. It stores no personally identifiable data. Other than what devices you know. <laughs> It's hashed IDs for those devices. It knows that the same person that owns this iPad also owns this iPhone and this MacBook. It does not know that that person's Scott Wingo. And so as an Adobe user, if you know that Scott Wingo owns this MacBook, you can then send that MacBook ID to the co-op and get back the fact that 
it's con- it's it's associated with two other devices, and then you would be able to infer that Scott Wingo owned those two devices, but Adobe would never know the word Scott Wingo. Yeah, seems like a technicality, but there you go. Yeah, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. I do think that is addressing a very real problem. So I, I for one, will be rooting for Adobe on this. I would like a more universal solution than the the limited solutions that Google and Facebook give us. And to be honest, if Adobe was very successful, that might put some extra pressure on the Facebooks and Googles of the world to make their data sets more useful to compete. So hmm. could be potentially some, some secondary ramifications that would be good for all of us. I did sit in uh, today on what Adobe calls their retail super session. And this is their uh, big session put on by the retail SMEs within Adobe. And uh, they, they had an interesting presentation from uh, Orvis. They shared sort of Adobe's POV on the future of retail. And they had a friend of yours and mine, Sucharita Mupuru from Forrester, give her perspective on the, the state of the union. And uh, one of the interesting thing she had was some new forecast data from Forrester about mobile e-commerce re- uh, sales in North America. So Forrester is forecasting that there will be about $35 billion in mobile sales this year. But the more interesting number is they're also forecasting that mobile devices will influence another $977 billion in revenue. And so essentially what that means is for every dollar in sales you generate on a mobile device, users on that mobile device were also influenced to spend $28 in a store or on a, a desktop browser or, or in some other way. So, you know, focusing on the influence of the mobile digital experience rather than just the, the sales that are collected through that channel. Now, is this one of their surveys they do or was there some, what was kind of the, did they talk about the data behind that? Yeah, so they they have a complex forecasting model, and I'm I'm trying to remember they have a brand name for their forecast. I want to say it's you know I can't remember as as we sit here right now, but uh, they they have a model for putting together these these forecasts, and they use it for a bunch of different segments and a, a bunch of different categories. And I think we've talked about their digital influence sales metrics before. It's an internal metric that they use, and they don't show us the actual math that they go through to to get to it. But it's not just a, a consumer. It's not consumer survey. Based. Got it. Cool. So that was interesting. And then a moment of disappointment for me during one of the keynotes, they demonstrated a retail experience on the big stage. And that's exciting because there's like 10,000 people at this show and most of them are in the seats for the keynotes. They kind of brought up a retail vignette um, and I'm always excited to see commerce experiences get highlighted because obviously the Adobe Marketing Cloud does a lot of stuff that isn't specifically commerce related. And then I was kind of horrified and disappointed to see that the commerce experience they were demoing, I frankly thought was kind of stupid. What, what was stupid about it? Well, this is a hypothetical experience that they based on REI. And I, I have come to learn this is not an experience REI is working on. It's not an REI's roadmap, but they showed it as an REI experience. And essentially what the experience is that you walk into an REI store and you pick up this new digitally enabled shopping bag that they call a smart bag. And the bag has a Bluetooth reader in it and an RFID reader in it. So then you go shopping for bicycle helmets. You find a helmet you really love and you take that display model that you just tried on and you put it in your smart bag. And because the 
they've added an RFID chip to the helmet and the bag has a reader. The bag now knows that you have a bicycle helmet in the bag and you can then tap your smartphone to the bag and the bag can read the RFID chip in your smartphone and get your mobile wallet credentials. And so now instead of standing in line to pay at REI, you just walk out the front door with the bag. The bag knows you left the store and automatically charges your phone for the cost of that bicycle helmet. And a bunch of people in the audience were like, ooh, ah, that's very cool. The Adobe exec demoing it, this guy, uh, Mark Eamon, seemed like he was very excited about the experience. I suspect the majority of our listeners are savvy enough to spot some of the ridiculous fallacies in that user experience. The, the big ones that jumped out at me is the customer took the smart bag home with them, and the smart bag had like $200 worth of electronics and a battery in it from REI. <laughs> so they're going to have to start charging a lot more for the helmets, I think, to, to make up the margin for the bags they're going to lose. The only helmet that has an RFID chip is the display model. So the customer actually walked out of the store with a display model, not a live helmet that was available for sale. And of course, the customer is tapping their iPhone onto the bag to have all this communication that the iPhone actually isn't capable of doing. You know, the, the iPhone doesn't have a traditional NFC chip in the way they demonstrated it and that the, you know, Apple doesn't support that sort of model. And, you know, you just look at it across the board and you go, gosh, this seems like a demo that was put together by some people that have never worked in retail or had a a retail P&L. So a little bit of a disappointment for me from Adobe. But it probably played well in front of, you know, 800 people or whatever. Exactly. So. George Clooney would have bought <laughs> one for sure. Yeah. Yeah. He probably loved it. And I was, uh, I was watching the Twitter and saw you guys uh, at Razorfish had a big announcement. Um, it's Razor Shop B2B. Tell me what that's all about. Oh, yeah, that, that is absolutely true. Last year at this show, we unveiled a new technology framework that we had developed called Razor Shop Retail. And it was all these tools for taking your, your e-commerce content and all the great digital experiences that we've all gotten really good at developing and make them available to shoppers inside of a store where 97 or 93% of all sales are still happening. That got a lot of buzz and a lot of customers have now successfully deployed pieces of that. So this year, what we released was a, a follow-on to that. It was a, a set of frameworks to help B2B customers improve their experience in both physical and digital spaces. And so in the B2B environment, you have a lot of field sales forces that have a lot of unique use cases that they have to do where they're co-selling with a customer and things like that. The Razor Shop B2B is a, a whole tool set to give uh, B2B customers really successful omni-channel experiences. Great. And this is kind of the Granger kind of things, or does it go even, you know, I'm the uh, belt replacement sales guy and I'm rolling into a factory kind of thing? Yeah. Well, so the customer we actually demoed it with is a, a customer of ours called Tenant. And they're a super uh, sexy product category. They're the worldwide leaders in floor cleaning technology. So they have all the Zambonis that you see in, in big spaces like the Las Vegas Convention Center. Uh, cleaning the the hard floors and the carpets and all the chemicals and belts and and uh, consumables that all of those products use in their world, 
You have people that ha- uh, technical people that have to spec out the products. You're going to buy a Zamboni with a certain capacity and certain accessories and things like that. And you have different people that approve the purchase. And you have different people that are re- responsible for the procurement of the consumables for those. And you you very likely have a complex ecosystem of places that you have to deliver all those goods. Like you might you know be buying for an entire school district and need some of those goods to be delivered to every school in your district and things like that. And so the the use cases give different ex- personalized experiences to all those different roles. And some of those experiences happen on, on websites and through browsers and others of those happen in a salesperson's car on a, on a, a wireless tablet. And, and so it, it's really just a, you can think of as sort of a kit of parts that you can snap together to quickly enable these kinds of complex use cases that B2B customers have that that are not very common in the retail space. Cool. Sounds good. And, um, I wouldn't have thought Adobe. When I think B2B, I think um, Hybris SAP for some reason. Uh, does Adobe have a fairly large number of B2B clients that go to this show? They do. You know, Adobe doesn't actually have a commerce solution, so they don't have a tool that actually collects money from you uh, in a cart and do a checkout. But one of their most popular products, and certainly the product that's most popular with our customer, is uh, the Adobe Experience Manager, which is a CMS. And so there are quite a few B2B customers that use the Adobe Experience Manager to host their website. Many of those B2Bs don't sell online today, so they, they still use EDI, or frankly, many of them still collect most of their orders via phone and Faxes are super common, and so a, a, a common transition now is those guys are coming and saying, hey, we need to expand our website, have much better product information on it, and actually enable transactions. And so in that space, it becomes really common that you'd add a commerce platform to Adobe AEM and have the two work together. And so you're absolutely right. It could be SAP Hybris or IBM WebSphere or Oracle ATG that get added to that existing AEM installation. Cool. Wow. The B2B market's kind of fascinating. You end up talking about, you know, widgets and all kinds of cool stuff. It is. There's a bunch of things that you wouldn't immediately think of. It already is bigger than retail e-commerce. So there's more digital transactions happening in the B2B space than there are in the retail space. And most of the estimates on on the total uh, addressable market are literally twice as large. So you know, while we we certainly love and spend a lot of time thinking about the the retail use case. These B2B use cases are even larger. Yeah, one of the, I give this kind of standard stump speech about kind of six trends coming through e-commerce. And one of them is B2B is the new B2C because what's happening is these folks that are now used to Amazon Prime in their in their retail life, they want the same experience in the B2B world. And B2B is woefully unprepared. You know, many times they're kind of dealing with PDF catalogs and, or, you know, that's probably advanced for a lot of these guys. So uh, it will take a long time for that to rattle through. So I think your your product will be pretty popular. It certainly is uh, an exciting space for exactly the reason you mentioned. The expectations get raised by whatever your last experience was, whether it's B2C or B2B. And then, you know, you no longer accept the six-week deli- delivery times and seven days to get a quote and, you know, order and pray that it arrives before you need it and all, all of those sorts of things. So so it's it's a disruptive time for the B2B space. And, and uh, you're seeing a lot of people jump on board and 
and, uh, you know, get outsized returns by being a first mover. Mm-hmm. So the Adobe Summit overall was really good. But I know last week when we did our podcast, you were just getting prepared to start the Bronto Summit in Florida. Yeah, they um, they are in Miami. So this was the second year they're in Miami. And it was really nice. They were on a in Miami Beach on kind of a, one of the resorts there. Um, I, I did kind of a quick in and out, so I didn't get a ton of time to, to hang out and see the local environment or anything. Um, but it was fun for me because uh, when they invited me to speak, they said, uh, you know, what can you talk about? And like you, when you give enough of these talks, you generally have kind of a list of things you can, you can talk about. Um, and, uh, you know, the usual suspects for me are the six waves, marketplaces, Amazon, uh, and I now have like the augmented reality, virtual reality, kind of the future of e-commerce. And I, th- I threw one in there just kind of because I haven't spoken on it, but I'm interested in it. And it's the on-demand economy and what's that going to do for e-commerce. And they picked that one. So I spent a lot of time uh, coming up with a new presentation. So it was fun to to do something new that I haven't talked about before and spring it on a crowd of folks uh, and I think it went pretty well. I had a lot of questions and got some fairly good comments on Twitter. So, you know, to the extent you get feedback on these things, I, th- I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, the, you know, the, the punchline of the talk is that, uh, as people kind of experience that Uber like experience of being able to press a button on their phone and something happens instantaneously, uh, that will continue to raise the bar and cycle into the world of e-commerce. Um, I also get excited about the on-demand economy because I think what you and I have seen happen in the world of e-commerce is going to happen in services, and we're still very, very young there. Uh, and we'll go through these kind of, you know, that that hype curve or the S-curve or whatever you want to call it. And we, we may be on kind of the downside of that a little bit. But I do think at some point uh, all the services that we're used to will be available at the push of an app or maybe even a chat bot down the road. Um a couple of other interesting things from the summit. Um, the Brumptos customers tend to be kind of mid-tier. They're not small. They're not large kind of retailers and brands. Um, so, so one thing that's interesting is you would think, okay, I'm going to this uh, conference that's kind of more targeted towards that. You would think it would be kind of, you know, here's the basics 101 kind of stuff. But um, they tend to be more advanced a lot of times than some of the bigger shows uh, and, you know, I, there's this kind of democratization of e-commerce that goes on. These folks are very entrepreneurial. And some of the topics that were really interesting was, you know, how to use advanced data science, personalization. A lot of this stuff that I think people um, that we deal with in the, you know, kind of maybe the top 50 retailers think are kind of exclusive to their strata of e-commerce. A lot of these mid-market and small retailers are actually, they have access to all this. And sometimes they're even more innovative because they can just move quickly. They don't have to get approval to try anything. Um, so, so some examples are doing these complex post-purchase campaigns, really interesting thinking about retention um, and tying that through to acquisition, kind of this circular relationship there, loyalty programs. Um, so that was interesting to kind of hear just that how you know how advanced that is and how how democratized e-commerce is. Um, I did hear a lot of grumblings about Magento. Um, so I was since you're the platform guy and I'm not the platform guy, I was going to ask you. And what I heard is there's a new version of Magento out. Uh, a lot of people are considering moving to it, but they're really reluctant. And um, you know what I heard was a lot of uh, a lot of these Magento folks. They use a lot of the applications that are available. I think they're called add-ins. Uh, and what what I think people are reluctant about is there's a big change in the new Magento, and a lot of the add-ins they know and love either aren't there or uh, I wasn't exactly sure. So um, that was the the grumbling I heard. What's what's your take on that? 
Magento is actually the most popular e-commerce platform in the world. So there are more sites running Magento for e-commerce than anything else. And it, it was uh, originally an open source platform that eBay invested in and then later bought. And as we've talked about a couple times on the show, you know, they've uh, more recently they've spun it off. So it's a, a standalone entity. And literally before eBay bought them, so this is, I think, going back three or four years, they, they were on version 1.0 of Magento. And, you know, there was all this buzz and hype about this exciting new version of Magento that was coming out, Magento 2.0. And it was the slowest software release in the history of software because it 2.0 was never released during eBay's entire tenure. So, so 2.0 only was very recently released. And if you talk to all these sites that were running Magento 1.0 for the last four years, every, everybody was excited about the opportunity to get a, a newer, more modern version of the platform and very disappointed that it was taking so long to come out. And so then, of course, the great irony is now that it's out, people are not flocking to it immediately. And part of that reason is because Magento is so popular, there's a portion of the platform that's called the App Exchange. And this is uh, modeled after an app store or the Salesforce App Exchange, for example, where lots of third parties can build plugins for Magento, and then it becomes very easy for Magento customers to buy these plugins or get a free trial of these plugins and use these enhanced services if they're useful. So, you know, maybe you need a ratings and reviews platform. You know, there will be 30 of them in the app exchange, and you pick the one that has the right features and price for you, and you click a couple buttons, and it's a very easy implementation. And so the... Magento App Exchange is hugely robust with thousands of solutions, and almost every site running Magento is dependent on a number of those uh, various add-ins from the App Exchange. And in the process of going to 2.0, they improved the, the, the infrastructure of the platform quite a bit, made it more scalable, made it more robust, addressed a bunch of the things that people didn't like. But one of the problems with the old system was it was very possible for those app exchange apps to negatively affect the stability of, of a particular implementation. And so they uh, put much more stringent controls on what could go in the app exchange for Magento 2.0. And that means a bunch of those apps that were available for 1.0 haven't been updated to support 2.0 yet. And tons of Magento sites are therefore afraid to move to 2.0 because they're afraid they'll lose the the apps that they depended on in the 1.0 platform. Hmm, interesting. What's your advice to people? So I think that's a legitimate concern. I certainly would not, you know, click the upgrade button and then, you know, try to figure out which of your add-ins just broke. I do think you're you're much better off on the, the more stable, scalable 2.0 platform. And so I think what you just need to do is make an inventory of, of your add-ins. And I, you know, I would have two inventories. I'd have an inventory of what you consider the critical add-ins that you won't migrate to until you have them. And I'd make a list of the add-ins that perhaps you're using or that you tried, but potentially you don't need. And I certainly wouldn't upgrade to 2.0 until, you know, you knew that you checked the boxes on all those, those critical add-ins. But the sooner you can get over there, the better off you're going to be. In general, 2.0 did not add a lot of exciting new functionality. 2.0 was definitely about improving the infrastructure. And, you know, the promise from Magento is now that we're on this this better, more forward-looking infrastructure, 
we're going to be in a great position to add lots of new functionality. So, you know, I think over time, they're going to add more desirable features that users are going to want. And so I don't think you're going to want to just stay trapped on the 1.0 platform. So it's a bit of a bridge release that kind of gets you into the future. And if you don't take the bridge, you're kind of stuck on a road to nowhere. Exactly. You're essentially going to get <laughs> forked from from all the you know new work that, that we all hope Magento does to keep the platform moving forward. Ooh, don't get forked. You heard Jason say it right here on the Jason and Scott show. Hashtag don't get forked. <laughs> you have to get t-shirts. Yep. Um, we can put them in our podcast store for next time. So there was uh, some interesting Alibaba news that came out while you were at the Adobe conference. They announced uh, Monday that they had just hit 3 trillion won or RMB uh, that goods were sold in the past year. Um, when they look at the quarter that ends, they're kind of, it's kind of a projection, I think, or they just hit that number. Uh, their quarter doesn't end until March 31st. So we've got like two weeks, but you know, so it'll be kind of 3 trillion and change, which is about 463 billion. Uh, and that's, that's, you know, that's amazing because that's just so massive. Uh, but it, the stock actually went down a little bit because that's 23% growth. Whereas last year when they announced kind of their, their annual GMV number, it, it was up 46%. So their growth has kind of been cut in half over the last year, which, which was a little big concern. Now, when they actually announced their revenue, Alibaba has historically done a pretty good job of, of uh, growing a little bit revenue a little bit faster than GMV by increasing monetization. But, you know, it's hard to go from, you know, maybe they'll get three or four points out. So maybe it's like 26, 27% growth in revenue. Uh, it's not going to get them to 46%. So, so it's interesting just the scale of where they are, but also the fact that things are slowing down. Uh, not not exactly. There was no comment about if that's the Chinese market has slowed down, which everyone believes is happening, or if it's just a rule of large numbers that that's just a, a really big number to, and to grow. You know, forty six percent would have pushed them well over kind of six hundred billion. So I, I just don't know if you know maybe they've hit saturation point or something. To me, one of the fun milestones is that that March thirty first is actually the end of their fiscal year. And so if, if they do hit that projection, that will mean that their GMV will surpass Walmart, who currently is the largest retailer in the world. So, you know, you, you could expect a lot of articles about Alibaba becoming the largest retailer in the world come the end of this month. Yeah, then there was um, there was definitely a headline that crossed through that I thought was clickbait at first. And the headline was, uh, this is unrelated to Alibaba, just another interesting little news item. Uh, it was, Macy's thinks Amazon can't compete. And that's that's kind of funny because longtime listeners of the podcast will remember uh, there was a Cowan um, note that kind of, you know, put out, I think it was in January, where they believe that Amazon's apparel sales have actually crossed over Macy's. Um, and uh, so I was curious what could possibly be going through Macy's mind on that. Uh, and this was at a investor conference. It's kind of one of these annual analyst meetings. Uh, and Macy's CEO, Terry Lundgren, told folks that, uh, that Amazon is definitely a threat, but he doesn't think they're ready for the logistics of apparel sales online. <laughs> And um, this this may go under the you know do they really say that kind of a, a department? And I've found several people that quoted it. So even digging further, um, what he said was, "quote uh, Amazon's going to have a challenge when they start getting returns back from selling online." And I think what he was trying to say is they have this asset in stores, and it's like so much more awesome to return to stores than online. Uh, but I thought that was kind of funny because Amazon's clearly overcome that hurdle because they're bigger than Macy's. So um, did you see that one? You actually pointed it out to me. I hadn't seen it before, before you raised it, but uh, I, I did the same thing you did. My first thought was they couldn't possibly have said that. 
a CEO from another retailer said something similar a few months ago, and someone in my Twitter feed had the exact right analogy. It's a little bit like when Mike Tyson punches you in the face and you're laying on the mat going, that didn't hurt. Yeah. <laughs> Macy's a storied retailer, and they, they certainly do a lot of things well, but they obviously did not have a very good quarter. And to your point, you know, Amazon is is rapidly approaching them in overall apparel sales. It just it seems ridiculous, even if you believe that, even if you're gleefully, you know, watching and waiting for Amazon to have some indigestion over apparel returns. There's no benefit to saying that in public. And Amazon and Jeff Bezos in particular are super competitive guys. So that, you know, that feels like the retail equivalent of giving uh, uh, Bezos some locker room material. And to your point, Zappos has been selling stuff online, a lot uh, clothes online a lot longer than Macy's has. So Amazon is certainly familiar with return rates. Obviously, Amazon is much better at using data than almost anyone else. And you can certainly imagine that they'll do some smart things about minimizing those returns. But it just seems silly for, for Macy's to come out and say that Amazon's not poised to be successful because they won't know how to handle apparel returns. Yeah, and um, that brings up kind of a weird anomaly this week. So since we started the podcast, uh, you know, what is it, 19 episodes ago, the we always have at least 20 minutes of Amazon stuff to talk about. And it was a very quiet Amazon week. So, uh, you know, the only things I saw were they've got a fulfillment center they're opening in Kansas City, uh, which is part of the country they're not in yet. So that's kind of interesting. Um, that's one of the – that's kind of a, a – the census has these things called Metro Statistical Areas MSAs. Uh, Kansas City's pretty low on that list, so it's almost kind of like they're getting into the high 40s, you know, like 45th, 46th MSA with fulfillment centers. Um, another quick one is there's a logistics expert that's making the rounds with Wall Street firms, and he is saying, and I haven't verified this, we, we have 26, but he's saying there's 50, he's identified 50 Amazon Prime Now fulfillment centers. And these are the smaller ones that do that kind of next hour, if you pay, or, or two hours for free fulfillment. So the, the that kind of intimates that while it's rolled out to 25 cities now, that there's another 25 on the way, which is kind of interesting. I think that would surprise a lot of people that it, uh, if it came out that quickly. Um, and the last little tidbit, this one was kind of mysterious, was uh, there was a closed robotics kind of Amazon meeting. And they they recently, about a year ago, they rebranded the Kiva robotic system and all their different robotic things underneath the, an umbrella of Amazon robotics. Um, they're clearly uh, they're recruiting a lot in this area and, and doing a lot in the field of robotics. But they evidently had some kind of a cloak and dagger robotics meeting and the only press I've seen out of it talks about Jeff Bezos wore a robot suit <laughs> um, and they don't really go into it. And I'm like dying to learn more about, you know, what did, what did this robot suit do? Was he like lifting 800 pounds? Was he jumping like ant man into the sky? What was going on? So, or was he just laughing hysterically? So, you know, I guess I'll leave it to listeners to kind of uh, use their imagination for what the Bezos robot suit is all about. I'm actually hoping it's the cardboard robot suit from the Amazon ads. <laughs> yeah, with the smiley face. Exactly. He could be the living mascot for Amazon. I, I did read that, that that convention was in Palm Springs, so uh, you could imagine it was a little warm to be wearing a robot suit. Yeah, well, maybe it has air conditioning. We shall find out soon enough. Uh, so speaking of bots, uh, I saw a, a, a funny antidote last week. 
Microsoft launched a cool chatbot on Twitter. And we've talked a lot about chatbots and, you know, the fact that they're very uh, successful in other parts of the world, like uh, on the WeChat platform in Asia, and that they're likely to become very popular here, particularly if if, uh, Facebook opens up an API for their Messenger app, as as, uh, we all think they're going to. Um, So Microsoft, recognizing this trend, released this public chatbot that had some cognitive computing and advanced AI capabilities. And what they were hoping was... Uh, that people from on Twitter would inter- interact with the chatbot using natural language, and that the chatbot was actually uh, had the ability to learn and would improve its speech recognition and interactive capabilities by interfacing with all these users on Twitter. So a total, you know, a nice PR move and a interesting um, technology experiment. And the only wrinkle was apparently all the engineers at Microsoft that built this had apparently never been on the internet themselves or read the comments on a forum or anything like that because quite predictably, all the evil people on Twitter uh, immediately started teaching the bot profanity and you know very inappropriate behaviors and responses. So Microsoft had to pretty quickly take down the bot, and I, th- I think they're working on uh, version 2.0 to, to re- re-release at some point in the future. Oops, AI go gone awry. Exactly. One of the, the things, um, since you're the payment guru on the show, that I saw was interesting um, is, and this is more of a leak than I think actually confirmed, but Recode had an article, uh, our friend Jason over there, uh, and he's calling for Apple Pay coming to mobile websites. Uh, and the way this would work is if you're on a mobile website and you're on an Apple device that has a Touch ID kind of reader uh, or, I guess, Apple Pay-enabled um I think it'll only work with Touch ID anyway. Uh, then uh, you can use Apple Pay to pay on that website. Um, that's really interesting to me because I can convince myself this is really, really bad for PayPal um, and maybe even some of the other payment marks that are out there. But, but it feels like definitely bad for PayPal because, as you and I have talked about, there's this this chasm between conversion rates. Uh, and if I'm a retailer, I think I would adopt this because, you know, uh, there's data out there that suggests something like 80% of e-commerce happens on iOS. If I can make iOS more streamlined by accepting Apple Pay, that would be a good thing. So I'm kind of wondering what you thought about that. Yeah, so I was super excited. I, I definitely think it, if true, it is going to be a very big deal. Um it was funny because earlier that day, someone on Twitter had asked me what I thought of Apple Pay, and I, I literally said I'm kind of meh on it because, you know, as, as we've talked about, you can use it in mobile apps, you can use it to pay for stuff in stores, but you can't use it on websites, which is where the overwhelming majority of purchase uh, activity happens. And then, you know, bam, later in the day, Jason Delray's like, oh, yeah, well, Apple seems like they're going to fix that gap and make it available on Safari. So. Uh, when that happens, that to me is a game changer. In North America, PayPal is by far the best mobile wallet out there. Apple Pay would represent a very meaningful competitor to PayPal. There's a bunch of other competitors out there, Visa, MasterCard, Amazon, but they all have some significant flaw that put them at a disadvantage versus PayPal. So Apple would really be a very scary threat to PayPal and potentially very good for those of us that want to help people buy stuff on on the web. I don't think it would be a death blow for PayPal because there's still a couple things you do need to keep in mind. 
Well, the majority of e-commerce happens on iOS devices. Not all e-commerce happens on iOS. So obviously, uh, Apple Pay won't won't help any users on an Android device. Uh, but the bigger deal is, at best, this would only work with mobile Safari. So that you know, I think something like twenty percent of Apple users that are using uh, Google Chrome or an alternative browser would either not be able to use that feature, or they would have to you know stop using Chrome and start using Safari for all their shopping. And uh, a big Achilles heel is the majority of people that have an Apple Pay compatible phone, you know, which is only the latest models that have the SE chip in it, never get around to actually attaching their bank accounts to Apple Pay. So it's not like even all the Apple Pay enabled devices have payment information in it. So it's not going to immediately become... uh, the the majority way to pay and essentially replace credit cards on the web, but it it, it would be a really interesting uh, evolution, and it would it would take Apple Pay from in my world being a novelty to you know a, a very meaningful tool and a customer experience that everyone would need to consider. Mm-hmm. Cool, interesting. Uh, and then the last thing I want to get your opinion on is. There's been this kind of raft of interesting articles about um, online groceries, and some of these kind of wrap in the further on-demand economy. A lot of this was started by one of the delivery firms went belly up, and you know everyone uh, is now calling for you know how the press loves to build these things up and then tear them down. We're kind of in this pretty rapid cycle here with these things, uh, so everyone's now saying you know maybe Uber is the only on-demand economy that will survive, which which I firmly don't believe. But anyway. Um, they're kind of into the the online grocery piece, and there's two articles there. One was from HSBC, uh, which was very kind of bearish on online grocery, and just kind of, and said uh, essentially home delivery. Delivery for grocery and essentially said it's not going to be long term viable. We don't see it working, um, that kind of thing. Then, uh, also around the same time, I saw Morgan Stanley had some stuff out. This was from January, but I, I saw kind of a summary of it that came out about the same time. And it said, Hey, it's the next big idea in e commerce. So I know you think a lot about grocery and, and what's going on there. What, what do you think? Is it, is it going to be boom or bust? I think it's going to be closer to boom than bust. Um, the two articles were potentially talking about slightly different things. So the HBC is obviously a, a British bank, and uh, the UK, as it turns out, has the highest uh, per, uh, penetration of online grocery of any any country in the world. They're like 6% of all grocery sales are online, uh, whereas here in the US, where the Morgan Stanley study was predominantly done, only like 2% of all all grocery spending is online. So, you know, there's already been more grocery adoption in, in the UK. So potentially they could say that, hey, it's going to slow down in the UK, but in the US where there's been less adoption, there's there's more headroom. Uh, but the big distinction to me is I think that digital is going to influence an awful lot of grocery shopping and that we're going to see a, a significant amount of people shift to buy online, pick up in-store grocery. So using the web to pre-shop, um, and I think the HSBC article is predominantly about whether people are willing to pay more to have those groceries delivered to their home. And to me, those are two separate issues. I think there's a lot of people that like the convenience of being able to use the web to see if the items you want to buy are in stock, um, if it's time-consuming to, to pick those items from the shelf to potentially uh, have someone do that for you so that you can have a much uh, more expedited uh, experience when you get to the store to pick up those groceries – I think that's a mainstream use case. And then, you know, I think 
having those groceries delivered to your home so you don't have to leave the house is a valuable niche that some people will pay for. Uh, but obviously, you know, the whole world isn't going to suddenly pay a lot more for their groceries just for the convenience of, of having them delivered. So in a way, I think both are true. I can tell you that there's a bunch of evidence in the U.S. right now. You know, A, there are some online delivery grocery stores in some markets like Fresh Direct in New York or uh, Peapod in, in my hometown of Chicago um, that already are profitable. And, you know, they're not they're not growing rapidly, um, but they've definitely demonstrated that there's a niche of people that want to use those services. Uh, I know Kroger just rolled out buy online pickup in store and it wildly exceeded their expectations. I know that um, Walmart has a very robust pilot of buy online pickup in store for grocery and they're, they're, they're expanding that faster than they plan because apparently they're, they're getting some good results from that. So I think it's clear to our earlier point when you have a good digital shopping experience and you, you use the web to make sure that the sweater you want to buy is in stock in your size before you go to the grocery, before you go to the clothing store, then, you know, equally, you, you don't want to go to the grocery store to get the ingredients for banana bread only to find out that your store is out of bananas. And so I, I do think that's becoming a, a much more common use case. And I think grocery stores have a big opportunity to sort of embrace those use cases. And I guess the one, caveat there is it grocery is a lot harder than other kinds of product categories you, you know you can't just treat food like a widget with a set with the same set of attributes that you you would treat a, an electronic television with because you have this whole notion of customers want the good banana and so there's a big problem in grocery is people want to pick out the produce for example and so you know you need a much better shopping experience to help people pre-shop for produce than the the sort of traditional e-commerce experience. And folks like Fresh Direct have figured that out. Folks like Walmart haven't really figured it out yet. Yeah, and um, I know you'll put it up on uh, the Retail Geek website, but the I would encourage readers, there's a chart in the Morgan Stanley, we'll link to it, um, and it showed kind of where things are today from an adoption rate and where they see them going in the next 12 months. And some of it was pretty, pretty amazing where, uh, for example, some of these things are doubling like they, like baby and kid oriented products are currently at 10%. They seem going to 22%. So that's kind of a double. And so it was really interesting to see, you know, they, they see that tremendous of growth in the next year for some of these categories. Yep. There are two kinds of stats that are both important in grocery. There's market share and there's penetration, right? So, you know, one question is how many people are willing to buy their groceries online, right? And that's maybe 10% today and could be growing to 34% in the next couple of years. And then there's how much of their grocery budget do they actually buy online? And again, in the U.S., that's like 2% today. And, you know, there's a lot of forecasts that that could easily be 6 or 8% as it already is in much of Europe. Got it. And then do you think um, the Instacarts and Postmates are going to pay a, play a critical role in this? Or do you think there's just not enough economics for them to, to make it work? I think they potentially address that second problem, that they definitely can address that niche of people that want home delivery. Uh, you know, I don't think any of them have particularly created a great experience for actually shopping and picking produce and knowing whether it's a good time to buy tomatoes, for example, or those kinds of things. But obviously, they have had some success in at least having customers want to use them when they were cheap for home delivery. And, you know, I think what's ultimately going to have to work there is, 
you know, as we're starting to see, they're going to have to find clever ways to pay for that delivery. Because I, I, I don't think consumers are going to replace their weekly trip to the grocery store if they have to pay 15 or $25 of extra delivery uh, fees to get it there. So if they can find a way to sell ads on the delivered bags to, you know, brands, or they can find ways to offer promotions, um, as we talked about last week, that cause people to buy more products in exchange for free delivery, then I think that can be a really interesting model. Cool. I appreciate your insights on that. Yeah. What about you? Have you done any grocery shopping online? I have, and I'm uh, pretty addicted to the Amazon Prime Now kind of thing. Um, we've started using it. Um, uh, one of the places I work, we we like to get kind of fresh stuff every week. So we've started doing that. It's way more convenient than the have to kind of pass the short straw to who has to go to the grocery store that week and, you know, during lunch, lose their lunch kind of hour or so and, and go kind of go get the giant thing of bottled water and struggle with all that. Yep. And then have you ever had any products delivered that you were ultimately disappointed with because they either picked the wrong product or, or it wasn't a very high quality product that week? No, the only thing that's happened is we were getting some bars. I think they were kind bars and the Amazon picture had a box and we got one. So that was like where they had in a very rare example <laughs> where Amazon's product catalog was really kind of foobard. Gotcha. And so who got to eat the one bar? Uh, I think we split it up into 20 little pieces. Nice. You guys are very uh, democratic. I like it. Yeah. Well, Scott, as per usual, our time has flown by and uh, we need to wrap up. But I do want to thank all our loyal listeners. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback. And if you enjoyed the show, uh, we'd greatly appreciate a review on the iTunes store. So until next week, happy commercing. Bye, everybody. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 